makes you such a threat? We choose the right to be who we are. We know the difference between the reality of freedom and the illusion of freedom. There's a way to live with Earth and a way not to live with Earth. We choose the way of Earth. It's about power, power. This is First Voices Radio, and I send you greetings and strength from the east gate of Turtle Island where the sun and the water touch the earth at once. I'm Teokus and Ghost Horse, and you're listening to an all-native-hosted, all-native-produced First Voices Radio. Liz Hill is First Voices producer. You can hear us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Buzzsprouts, Spotify, as well as First Voices Indigenous Radio for current archives. What is a geoglyph? A geoglyph is a large design of, of motifs produced on the ground by durable elements of the landscape, such as stones and stone fragments and gravel or earth. And geoglyphs are a type of land art and sometimes rock art. But why are they? Why were they made only to be seen from the sky, created thousands of years ago and long, long before 1492 or the European standard of anthropological history? And I'd like to welcome Deborah Utasia Kroll, who is an Indigenous Affairs reporter at the Arizona Republic. And she's a citizen of a Halon Salinan tribe in Deborah's current coverage area, which is supported by the Katina Foundation and the Water Funder Initiative, is the intersection of climate, culture, and commerce. And in this interview that we'll listen to, Deborah and I will be discussing a recent article that she wrote for the Arizona Republic. Blythe in Taglios, tribes work to protect sleeping giants of the desert. And now, Deborah Kroll. Well, first, I want to welcome you to First Voices Radio, Deborah Utasio Kroll, who is an Indigenous Affairs reporter at the Arizona Republic. I came across this article, Deborah, Blythe in Taglios, tribes work to protect the sleeping giants of the desert. It's one in hundreds in that area that need protection because of what the vandalism that, as we know as Native people, happens to the land with the mining, the exploratory drilling that goes on. There's others where the peoples, Americans and non-Natives come in 
and they kind of run roughshod over something so old that either is still contained within our oral history as Native people or has been forgotten because of maybe colonization. But I'm very interested in sleeping giants. And now I come down to, you know, the Nazca Plains. And to put this into focus, the Nazca Plains is, is just as big, just as incomprehensible sometimes as those that you're finding in Arizona there. So I wanted, wanted to ask you about protecting these sleeping giants in the, the Colorado River Valley, even beyond that. What compels you to report on something like this, that there is a the trendy term, cancer culture? And it seems like this has been ongoing even before the term came to be a trendy saying uh, in America. Could you tell us about the sleeping giant step? These were were created by, as as Colorado River Indian Tribes Chairwoman Amelia Flores says, uh, she she told us that they were made by shaman who are holy people. Some people will call them medicine men. Some people call them healers. Some people call them cultural practitioners. And she calls them shaman. And they, they, she says that they were created, you know, for a specific reason. But some of those have been lost through time. And again, you can go back to the 500 plus years that that the Europeans have been here and have done their best to interfere, to suppress, to oppress, to make indigenous peoples here in America and across the Americas forget or, or cut those cultural connections. She told us that the true meaning's not here with us, but she knows that they are very, very significant to the native peoples along the Colorado River Valley, which would be the Mojaves, the Quetzons, and probably the Cocopas, up, up north a little bit, Chemoeves, and possibly even going west, the Cahuilla, the Serrano, and around the Imperial Valley, the, the Kumeyaay. So you have all of these peoples, these ancient peoples whose, whose descendants, of course, are, are still living in their ancestral lands, and we know that there was a reason. We're just not quite sure what. But what we do know is that there are prayer circles in that area. There are sleeping circles. There are many, many trails, sometimes to places where people would pray and other times for travel, for trade, for business, for whatever other mundane purposes Native peoples would, would traverse this, this area. And then we have... The, the giant figures, the sleeping giants. We, some of them are as long as 170 feet long. And I think one of the cool things is that they were created hundreds and even up to perhaps a thousand years ago. And as long as people don't disturb them, they remain pretty much intact on what they call the desert pavement. And of course, a lot of that is because the the lower Colorado River Valley, the Sonoran Desert, and going north to the Sonoran Desert, the Mojave Desert, that landscape hasn't changed much in millennia. Um, in another story, a, a related story, 
Quetzon Elder Preston Arrowweed was was telling me that um, there's even creosote bushes out there that are a thousand years old. This landscape doesn't change. And so when Chairwoman Flores' ancestors, when Preston Arrowweed's ancestors, when other ancestors of these peoples of the Colorado River Valley went to create these, these figures and create prayer circles, create sleeping circles, create the trails, they simply scraped away what they call the desert pavement which is the patinaed surface of, of the desert, the biocrest. That could be rocks, it could be impacted dirt, and it's patinaed to, some, in some places, a beautiful mahogany color, in other places, kind of a brownish gold color. And they, they just scrape that clear, and then they've remained. And some of those were created maybe 900 BCE, which would be 1,200 years and so because of that, the tribal peoples in the area would like to make sure that these, these structures are, are protected and kept from harm. Um, because in a lot of cases, in some of these places, there's still people going out to pray. And so they want to have these, these places remain as is. Deb Crow, when I'm thinking about how many geoglyphs that are known and are surviving so far in that region, but then you go across to Turtle Island or North America, the Medicine Hat in Saskatchewan, in Canada, to the Nazcal Plains in Peru, and the Great Serpent Mountain in Ohio, and then there's the Thunderbird in Delta, Colorado, but these are all seen from the sky, and of course, um, you explained earlier that these are maybe spiritual interpreters, shamans that have basically imagined this from the sky, and that that's, uh, was discovered in 1932 by a pilot flying from Las Vegas to Blythe. What if people don't see? What, what don't they see from the ground that Native people seem to use as markers, as described in this article that we talked about, that I introduced her with the um, Blythe Intaglios? And from what I'm reading, they used these markers, these geoglyphs as markers to go in the directions they need to. Is, is that still being used today? You said they were having some ceremonies yet along these uh, geoglyphs. Well, talk, talking to some of the people that I've talked to for this story and for other such stories, as you know, this is just part of a series on sacred and cultural site protection here in the West, in, which, of course, that story could be told in, in the Midwest and the Northern Plains on the East Coast, with along the Mississippi mound builder areas, the Southeast, Hawaii, Alaska, Canada. Um, part of that, that series, I have been told that there are places that Native people still go to pray. And one of those places, there, there, there is an intaglio in the area, and there's also um, rock formations where people have simply placed rocks on, on the ground in, the, in a certain shape, and it's called Running Man. And that is, in Imperial County, the Mojave's neighbors, the Quetzon, that's one of their most sacred places. And they call it, there's, the English name is Indian Pass. And that's a place where they do 
prayer runs. That's a place where they, they hold prayers. That's a place where they gather to sing one of the salt song cycles about that area, the, the Karuk cycle. There's, there's all sorts of little places that, that Indian people go, and they're still using them. First of all, I'm not a member of those tribes. And second of all, because I don't want to inadvertently reveal the location of those places so they're not subject to vandalism or people being there who should not be there. I don't know where they're at. I, I know general area where Running Man is. I know the general area, of course, the Blythe and Talios. I know the general area of some of the spiral formations farther north in the northern end of the Mojave people's ancestral area, which is also part of the Chemohebe's people ancestral area. But beyond that, I couldn't tell you where they're at, mm. but I do know they're being used. Yes, that, that's a good, good thought that they are being used. The um, Bureau of Land Management seems to have, of course, managed these sites. Um, not all of them, it seems, because what you just said is that uh, they they don't need to be uh, published or, or put on Facebook, but they are there. And I, I know that to be true. And how far can the actual reach of the Bureau of Land Management protect any strategies that Native peoples have come up with um, along the lines of uh, the government, including the, the Department of Interior with Deb Holland now in office, how far has that come, or is it any any notice been given to to um, to Deb Holland at the uh, Department of Interior yet? I do not know how much she has been apprised about this particular area. I do know that on her very first day in office, I was one of the. Native journalists who, who were invited to spend a little bit of time with her as she was discussing her, her strategies and, and what her role was going to be and what her priorities were. And she did tell us that one of her priorities is to strengthen the consultation process where federal agencies under her purview, including the Bureau of Land Management, would notify tribes much earlier in the process when they're they're deliberating upon use of any particular place within within their their public land areas particularly where they where they know or suspect there might be some some cultural patrimony or some cultural importance to one or more you know tribal nations in the area um, that's been a big problem in the past that that tribal consultation, which started officially with a, an executive order issued by President Bill Clinton, has, it's a good idea, but it, it rarely, if ever, has been a success. So I know that that's one of her priorities. Whether or not she knows about the Blythe and Talios or the issues at, at Indian Pass, the the traditional cultural property around San Francisco Peaks, which now has a memorial forest smack in the middle of it, that that people can come and bring their loved ones' ashes and spread them underneath a certain tree. Um, the 
the continued use of, of partially reclaimed wastewater to make artificial snow in the San Francisco Peaks, which is the home of the Katsunum, the holy people of, of the Hopis, or the fact that Oak Flat, um, about 80 miles east of Phoenix, is scheduled to be obliterated by a copper mine. I don't know how much of this she knows, but I do know that, that she wants to make the consultation process better. So for these articles, we, we reached out to the Department of the Interior for more specific comments about where they're at, and they declined to talk with us. And however, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, which also oversees a lot of public lands where there are a lot of cult cultural sites, um, you know, the National Forest primarily did get back to us and explain that they are are working hard to get the consultation process back on track. Um, one thing you also that I neglected to say earlier is that on his first day in office, President Joe Biden issued an executive order telling all the agencies that they need to beef up their consultation practices, that the Bill Clinton executive order is in full force, that he is expecting to see that this process work better in Indian country. So with all of that, we're almost eight months in, and I haven't really seen much yet to indicate that this, the consultation process is, is going to get better. But on the other hand, it's only been eight months, and working alongside these agencies for as long as I have, I understand how hard it is to take these big, giant cargo ships and, and turn them in another direction. So one of the things that I'm going to continue doing is to follow the process to see how the consultation process is, is being reformed. If the, if the leaders of the Department of Interior and the leader of the Department of Agriculture, if the newly confirmed Assistant Secretary for Indian Affairs, Brian Newland, um, you know, what progress that they're making in, in getting this process going. But there is something um, that people need to know also is that in my investigations, and of course, living as a Native person, um, something that we all know is that all of these various laws and policies and regulations and ordinances, they're is no enforcement piece. So the Bureau of Land Management, for example, right now they're they're doing a pretty good job working with the tribes to protect these intalias. But how do I explain this? If if a if a gold mine were to come in and they wanted to come in and, and set up a gold mine right next door to an area that's been what they call withdrew from mineral extraction, which is what's happening right on the other side of the Running Man cultural area, then there is no law that's going to stop. And there's no law that has any teeth that a tribe can use other than lawsuits and public opinion to actually stop any of these. And if the first chapter in this explains that 500 plus year now progress of federal Indian law actually started with one of the first papal bulls, which is a directive from the Pope, which purported to give all of the Americas to the crown heads of Europe. 
the, the laws for all of these countries, including the United States, always kind of manages to get back to that papal bull. If you look at the, the, the first three Supreme Court decisions, which set up the foundation for federal Indian law, the Marshall Trilogy, it only gives Indian people the right of occupancy on, on their ancestral lands, on our ancestral lands. It actually gives Congress the plenary power to govern what happens to public lands. So any, any of these sites, including the Blythe Intaglios, including Running Man, Oak Flat, San Francisco Peaks, um, and any of these other sites, which are not within the boundaries of a, of a reservation, a tribal trust land that's been set aside for, the, for, for a tribe, then tribes, tribes can come in and say, we want to be a partner in managing these. And the government can say, sure. Or the government, on the other hand, can legally say, no, you bother me, kid, go away. So... In practice, of course, the government at least gives, at the very least, gives lip service to the fact that they want tribes to work with them in managing them. And in some cases, this, this to, be, to be fair and accurate, in some cases, some of these agencies and some of the national parks and national forests are doing a pretty good job. Um, and so it remains to be seen and something I'll be watching to see if these if, if the Biden executive order, if the fact that we have um, a native person running Department of the Interior, and it looks like we, we may have, we, we have a nomination of a native person to run the National Park Service, we'll see what they can do in taking those big giant cargo ships known as federal agencies and putting them on another track. We're speaking with Deb Utasia Kroll, who is an Indigenous Affairs reporter at the Arizona Republic. Deborah, one more question was, you know, you mentioned the fact that the, the BLM, the government, um, we're all trying to work together, but you, then you went back to the 1493 Papal Bulls, the Doctrine of Discoveries. And with that, laws have been coming and passed, such as the 1978 American Religious Freedom Act and the uh, DRIP, the Declaration of Rights for Indigenous Peoples. Now, this is, to me, a lip service policy. It really comes down to the people. Private funding or not to protect these sites, um, I would say, has that been offered by anybody out there? Because, you know, the, the key phrase within the Declaration of Rights for Indigenous Peoples is free, prior, and informed consent, as you know. And, and that, to me, says that all peoples, including Native peoples, uh, first and foremost, have that right to offer that opinion, as you say, but let's let's see if there is really that trust in this country to protect these sites as much as any other synagogue or mosque or church or, you know, something that is deemed historical 400 years and as compared to 10,000 years of, of native geoglyphs. And to me, there's a tie here that has to come forward in the people's consciousness. And I think I want to commend you for doing this because it brings up that effort that maybe the policy can change because the people, uh, the land is, is crying out now. And this symbolism that is on within North America is showing 
people how to get through what we're getting through now is, you know, like these emergencies, these pandemics. And yet this is wisdom that helped to help the people uh, before 1492 to get through here. I, I think there has to be a tie there. Um, your thoughts on that? Well, you, you did touch on a very valid point that there have been several laws, the American Indian Religious Freedom Act, the National Historic Preservation Act, the National Environmental Policy Act, Religious Freedom um, Reconciliation Act. And so there's an effort made, but none of these laws have teeth. If you're going to do something with the National Environmental Policy Act, and if you're working on something on, say, a, a piece of public land, and you discover that there's an endangered species there, that can be enforced. If you run across some na native cultural sites and ancestral burials, then there are certain protocols that you follow, one of them being you have to consult with the tribe, you have to do come up with, with various mitigation criteria. It sounds all good, but if it's an ancestral burial, the government has every right to come in to exhume those remains and to dispose of them, whether it's to repatriate it back to the tribal community if they can figure out who it belongs to, to give it to a museum, to give it to a, a university. NAGPRA seeks to protect burials and materials that are buried with, with ancestors, but it doesn't require the government to say this burial ground must be left in place. And when it comes to the First Amendment religious protection of Native religions, my investigations have shown that that full free and fair informed consent, the, the full protections that Native religions should have as much as other religions in the country have, there appears to be a, a gap there. And so one thing, one thing that I would advise all of your, your readers and listeners is to pay attention to what I've been reporting on this fall, the uh, Apache Stronghold's uh, lawsuit against the United States government to overturn the federal legislation that enabled Oak Flat to be given to a private mining company. It's coming up in the Ninth Court of Appeals. The Beckett Institute for... Um, Religious Liberty, which is a nonprofit law firm that, that defends these types of cases, has come in and they are litigating on Apache Stronghold's behalf. And they're pursuing it under religious liberty. It seems to be from what I've been able to learn is that I think their aim is to overturn an earlier Supreme Court decision known as the Ling decision, which is the decision that basically or what whatever enforcement there is out of the American Indian Religious Freedom Act there and that's led to several other Supreme Court and appeals court decisions ruling against tribal religious protections so I would be watching that and we'll we'll have to see if Apache stronghold prevails if it does we may very well see a whole new era of religious and cultural site protection, at least on public lands. On private land, it's still a whole other issue. But failing that, then there is a bill in Congress which which will, if it passes and is signed, 
would overturn that that land swap but that's just one one site so what people have to also realize is that you know without taking any position or anything we are seeing a little bit here and there of of more of an understanding through things like the, the declaration on the rights of indigenous peoples um the awareness that that people like Wenzler Nosy and Apache Stronghold and Indigenous Action and Flagstaff are raising about land-based religions and that Native religions are land-based and that you cannot pick up Oak Flat and move it. You cannot pick up the intaglios and move them the same way as you would move a church, a synagogue, a mosque out of the way of an incoming freeway. It doesn't work that way. And with the you know, you're referring at the first cancel culture um this very well could be part of a big cultural shift where where the ma- the the mainstream of the country starts to realize that religious freedom and religious protection needs to apply to everybody and not just to their religion it's a great honor to have you again deborah utacio crow who is an indigenous affairs reporter for the Arizona Republic and a citizen of the Halon Salinan tribe out in California. It's good to, to hear you again. And um, thanks for your uh, reports. And we'll keep us going, Deb. It's an honor to have you here on First Voices Radio. Well, thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure talking with you. For sure it is. Thank you. All right. <laughs> See ya. Bye. <laughs> Papa Ogu, c'est où même qui mène ici? Brancamwe, Brancam, Brancamwe, Ogu, Branca, Brancamwe, Ferraio, c'est où même qui mène ici? Brancamwe. Album Leave the Bones Ogu by Lakul Music and Joseph Ray. And you're listening to First Voices Radio. In this second half hour of the show, I'll talk about critical race theory with a friend and a regular guest on First Voices Radio, Ukumba Sauti. And we welcome Sauti once again 
And again, we'll, we'll talk about this next week, part two, the discussion. This is part one, which we will air again next week. And he's an initiated elder in the Daguerre tradition for Burkina Faso in West Africa. And he can be reached for bookings and consultation on first on Facebook, excuse me, Twitter and email at ukumbwa at gmail.com. U-K-U-M-B-W-A at gmail.com. Welcome, Okumba Saudi, to First Voices Radio. It's good to have you here. Always there when we ask you to be. Thank you so much, Tiokasen, and, and to your team. I, I'm always honored to be here and to talk with you. I've always appreciated our conversation, so thank you. Thank you, Okumba. I've been asking people about their ideas of what the critical race theory is, namely among people of color, as they say. Um, but white folks, in this case, seem to have a little a little quandary, a little hesitancy about what that is. And um, it's a little different than when I say, well, it's critical race theory, but there is actually a critiquing. And to them, that's nitpicking. And yet right. when we when they go to the political football, as is, as is happening in South Dakota, where the clash over indigenous edu- education, right. the, the report in Texas about banning Martin Luther King's speech and also the history of Native people in that state. To me, that's the end. That's the end result of what critical race theory is, that they don't want us to talk about. They only want us to refer, in this case, Native people, as far as 1492 onward. Right. And, and for for the African-American or the African coming from Africa to North mm-hmm. America, it's a different story. It still ends up in the same place. So I want to get your ideas, um, Okumba Sauti, on critical race theory. Well, yeah, I, I think. Thank you. And I think that the initial thing that comes up for me is that this backlash that comes up against it um, is somewhat ignorant because a lot of the people are not really understanding what critical race theory is. But there's something pretty fundamental about that backlash that has to do with white supremacy. And also, as you were suggesting a little bit earlier, um, that folks who are tied to that system of oppression, tied to European colonialism, whether here on Turtle Island and what we call the United States or elsewhere, uh, really don't want people looking with a clear and critical eye um, at what the foundations of the structural systems of racism are, the structural part of colonialism um, are. So um, I think there's a, there's a fear, there's a fragility, there's a real real political and cultural pushback that wants to continue to sustain, you know, as I say, you know, there's founding fathers and our sustaining fathers and the sustaining fathers want to keep this system of oppression alive and well so that they see a an academically based uh, system, even if they see that, if they see that part of it, um, you know, they're looking at that and saying, well, this could be pretty substantial um, and we have to shut that down. Um, we have to start to, you know, again, control the narrative around how we see um, not only this country, you know, the United States of America, but other efforts around the world to continue uh, European colonialism and racism um, so th- that they feel really uh, empowered to shut that down. They do have the power to shift narratives. So that's what they're doing right now. And it's and it's nothing, you know, different than, you know, what they, you know, what they might have talked about in, you know, in early journalism, 
you know, on this land around um, indigenous peoples and, and what, you know, the practices were here and uh, demeaning them, demeaning culture, um, demeaning the culture and, and awareness of who African people are and, and what that meant to, you know, bring us here to this continent. And um, so um, I think that backlash is pretty profound. It's deep. Um, it's, it's, a, it is, it, it's an expression of violence in and of itself. And as you were talking, you know, this control of the narrative within textbooks and around schools and what children are going to learn or should be learning it is a hot button issue. And I think we've seen a lot of this confusion come out again, even without really knowing what critical race theory is about. But they know that it's going to shine a light on the, you know, on the dark side. Um, and I actually, there is no light side, you know, of, of European uh, colonialism and, and the white supremacy. But that's what I think they're really feeling and seeing. And they really don't want that to happen any further than it already has. It's quite interesting that CRT will call it critical race theory is that mm -hmm. it has this idea that people of culture, people of color are going to criticize the white people because it's their domination. Exactly. Domination. And to the point of this sort of multidimensionality that of these oppressions of because of multidimensionality and mm -hmm. recognizing that race alone cannot account for disempowerment or, you know, intersectionality means that the examination of this race exactly. and sex and all that. The important is it's to point out that these oppressions that you were mentioning mm -hmm. um, that that we face as people of color, people mm -hmm. of culture, uh, it does not allow for one dimensional approach at all in the, in the right. complex world of America. So see, first of all, it's a little uh, paradoxical that we have to refer to America as the standard instead of who we are as cultures right. coming from near people coming from a continent of Africa and native people right. here. And yet the people that came from another place, the Occidental came here and it's still their uh, liberalism. I would say neoliberalism, even from mm -hmm. the start is it's in place. Now it gives us, and it's based on meritocracy. If you think about that, right. really. So how well do we do in their world when we can't really bite the, the hand that feeds us? Right, exactly. And I, and I think that's where critical race theory steps in to really help crack that, um, that wall of confusion, that, that wall of, of, you know, colonial and racist propaganda, um, that seeks to separate it from the intersectionality of it all. You know, that we do need to look at what are the effects of, you know, this, these structural systems on indigenous women and, uh, two spirit indigenous people and, and African women and, you know, black women and, um, and others. And, and what does that mean? What does it mean for disabled people who may also be, um, you know, people so-called of, of culture of color, um, no matter what grouping they're in, you know, so, um, being able to look at that is so important, but, um, yeah, this, this, uh, ability for them to control that, that propaganda is, is so important to them. And, you know, when we look at, you know, some of the founders like Kip, Kimberly Crenshaw of, 
of, um, you know, critical race theory, you know, she was also involved in defining intersectionality and, and also looking at the, you know, within CRT and beyond looking at the legal ramifications of what this all means, you know, and I know that that has a lot of resonance with a lot of the work that, you know, many indigenous scholars and, and activists have had, you know, I think of, you know, Vine Deloria Jr. actually within that context of looking at the legal ramifications. So CR CRT looks at that and, and we start to say, well, this is the system. That's where the rubber hits the road. And so, uh, you know, in many, many ways, uh, you know, so we can fight against that in on a legal context. And obviously, you know, so much work, as we've talked about before, you know, around the doctrine of discovery and the papal bulls of the Roman Catholic Church, you know, have legal ramifications as a core piece of how colonialism and racism has been globalized around the world. So I think, yes, you know, as we look at these kinds of legal ramifications, but also the cultural ramifications, you know, how do, you know, uh, indigenous people, African people, other people of culture, people who, have, you know, people of the global majority, you know, how do we fight against this even beyond the context of, of the legal, so-called legality, you know, because we know, of course, you know, legal doesn't mean right. It doesn't mean ethical. So and even, you know, and maybe that's why they're fighting against Martin Luther King, who was like sort of their favorite son, if there even was one, you know, that they're like, oh, let's wave his flag because, you know, he just wanted people to hold hands and have a dream. But no, he was way beyond that. So and I think they're getting that clue um, that, uh, you know, that he was much more than that and, and he can't be used in that way anymore. So I, I think that's powerful. Yeah, that is powerful. I'm thinking all this time that you were talking about, you know, the, the morphing, I would say, of people of culture, color of any race, it, mm -hmm. it, it's, it seems like, you know, rich get richer and poor get yeah. poorer. Um, right. And then there's classes that are, you know, first class, second. Anyway, it reminds me of a changing relationship between races. So it almost mm -hmm. is an us versus them because they're measuring how many white folks are in this country compared mm -hmm. to the rest of the people of mm -hmm. color amalgamated into into one culture like that's multicultural and to mm -hmm. to to the white folks it's multi multi diversity the soft sell of gentrification really in one's mind because where does it start anyways gentrification is is a result of uh, racism not really being looked in the eye. Right, exactly. And and you just remind me of how central the issue of land is. And and actually, you know, that that's an issue in Africa. That's an issue in South America. That's obviously an issue on Turtle Island and what we call the United States um, in Canada. Um, the issues of land, you know, I'm thinking of also the issues in, in, in the uh, Brazilian rainforest, you know, where the loggers and other people are fighting you know, with machetes and guns against indigenous indigenous people. Um, and and how does that affect, you know, who we are? How do we access the resources that are ancestrally ours, historically ours in the present hours? And how do we gain power and strength from, you know, from within a system? Because, you know, we do fight it from within the system. But how do we, you know, define our movements um, in a way that is extra uh, systemic, you know, that is not within the system itself. And um, I think that's one of our big challenges here is to not be tied down, you know, by and, and one of the things that uh, critical race theory does is to kind of fight against that liberalism. And as you say, you know, the neoliberalism 
um, that seeks to kind of tie us back in into the systemic parts of this struggle, um, which again, I, I always say that, you know, people like Martin Luther King and Malcolm X were uh, assassinated primarily because they started to look at it on an international basis, because they started to see struggle as not just a domestic issue, but as a international issue. And, and those kinds of things couldn't happen, you know, because again, that cracks open that wall of, of privileged control over narratives. And, uh, and allows, um, you know, the system to continue to sustain, you know, its power, not only just in the military and state, you know, police base, but also in the ide ideological level where we're even defining ourselves, you know, as a mere fraction of who we are as human beings. And that can't happen, you know, so that ability to, again, see ourselves as intersectional being, you know, human beings and full human beings in our fullness of our humanity is so key to the struggle and to uh, have us look critically at that and then to fight against that backlash that that is happening. And it's sad, but it's powerful. You know, that backlash, it's 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 a really major thing. Just as much as you remind, I remind you of Lanham, right? Reminded of this traditional legal standard or scholarship in our schools that we as people of color actually have to force to include. So to me, that there's a there's a microaggression, if you can understand that, yeah. This, yeah. This, that's passed on uh, lateral mm -hmm. oppression amongst ourselves that we can't mm -hmm. really get there until we get their message uh, how they view us, then we're kind of like, you know, we were sellouts in both ways and mm -hmm. you know, we're still existing a standard mm -hmm. that doesn't meet for in this instance, a lot of native people still are personal, have personal sovereignty with the land. And then there are, there are natives who have given that up and gone the way of redefining what native quote unquote American is. Is that prevalent among the African American here in the subheading of America is yeah, yeah. There really could there be a nation within a nation in the future, just like there there are uh, and disappearing native nations among among mm -hmm. in the nation of America. I you know I I wish I had that crystal ball that could say what's going to happen, but I know that there's a possible ability of this. And, th and that's what's really powerful about, you know, this dynamic that I was thinking recently about, you know, um, uh, that if we in our own struggles and I and I'm, you know, kind of using my hands to kind of encapsulate as particular space that might be indigenous space, that might be African space within the United States or, you know, uh, something that's happened in Colombia or or might be, you know, in India. But if we can't see ourselves through the lenses and experiences of other populations who are also um, oppressed by white supremacy and by European colonialism, we're not going to see the fullness even of our own struggle. You know, and I've often said that, you know, for African people who um, were born here in the United States, if we cannot see the linkage between ourselves and the struggle of indigenous people here, of the native nations here, I think we're missing a key piece that is is that will bring us to the point of liberation, you know, because we have to be able to see um, how we can ally and, and create um, it, whether they be united fronts or or formal linkages um, around our own, you know, national identity in the in the diaspora of African life all around the world. You know, I would hope we still have, you know, our home 
uh, political home in Africa, but that we have to be able to see ourselves on a national level. Um, and even if we don't use that term as a cultural body that is valid, is you know sustainable, and that can live outside of the constructs of racism and patriarchy and European colonialism and white supremacy, we have to be able to see ourselves as citizens of an earth with neighbors that look like you, you know, Tiokasen, uh, or that don't look like you, you know, uh, and, you know, just to say what's on the ground for us right here. So, um, you know, I think we have to be able to see that and see how, whether it is an issue of gentrification, how even gentrification in a particular city in the United States is directly connected to the theft of land, you know, on the on the continent as a whole. And if we see that linkage, we're like, oh, wait a minute. I see how big this is. This is not just about the neighborhood. This is not just about housing. You know, this is about something much deeper. And then it connects us back to Mother Earth. And we're like, okay, here we go. Yeah. You know, so so then we begin to think much more broadly, you know, even if we are going to use, say, voting in the United States as a strategy, you know, or a tactic, um, we'll see that, oh, my goodness, that's not all it's about. That can't be our only goal because there's something bigger and larger than that. And the relationality of the struggle has to be deepened so that we can meet with each other, you know, our, our what we might call disparate groups. But we're not only linked through, you know, white supremacy and, and that European colonialism, but we're linked because we're citizens of the earth. That's just what it is. And we have histories with each other that, that are outside of and are bigger and, and more beautiful than what, you know, has been even created within white supremacy. Well, Okumba Saudi, it's really good to talk to you. I think I have one more question. You know, sure. you talked about the the earth uh, as a primary perspective yeah. of all of us. But then again, there are many of us who have lost that mm. primary pers perspective. And we've oh, been taught to put to indulge in the colonial cloak of being an American, of being mm. a citizen of that patriarchy. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. And the further we seem to be getting away from our primary purpose is yeah. to take care of the earth or allow the earth to take care of us. And, exactly. But the, the Occidental model that's followed in uh, is, is that you put a fence here, there's a border here, and you pay your taxes from here. But yet again, you say land mm. back, uh, the land mm -hmm. is at the base. Now, right. suppose it, it goes as far as a cooperative because of the advent of this pandemic, they're calling it, mm -hmm. um, is that now we know that we have to pay attention to Earth. Now we know we have to go and be community, you mm -hmm. know, which which kind of slows a process, I think, of certain uh, policies that the economic rich have put mm -hmm. in place, but actually are roadblocking any 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 movement because if you if you take us off the street because covid is at work again who's respecting mm -hmm. covid for being the being that's making us look at the earth again right see? exactly exactly and and as an expression of nature itself you know which is you know every part of nature is a child of the earth you know so um as are humans so yeah i, I think that is a central piece of course you know and that our identities as you know kind of we were talking about early in earlier you know our cultural identities not necessarily just our you know these weakened national identities that come out of European colonialism, but our deep identities, you know, that our cultures come out of relationship with the earth itself, 
the earth herself. That's where culture comes from. That's where people's strength come from. So um, to be able to do that and to see the beautiful cultural diversity that comes out of the earth in all the different places, it pops up all over the world, whether it's the Inuit or, or it's the, you know, Sakata from the Congo or the Dagra from West Africa. Who, who, you know, from our perspective, we say that, you know, yes, our identity does come from Mother Earth herself. And, and we know that, you know, from the, the ground underneath our feet. So to be able to relate back to that and to have, uh, you know, informed intimacy around that uh, relationship is, I think, the, the starts to and continues to break down the system of, of colonialism so that we can really be in relationship not only to the Earth, but each other in ways that are guided by the beautiful, you know, ancestral uh, cultures that we've created over what, three billion years? I mean, three million years, you know, so yeah, <laughs> we, we've got a history of greatness that we can wake up again. So one more question is, I don't know if this can be included and squeezed in the time we're given is, hmm. you know, the ideas that um, uh, cancel culture has hmm. kind of been reversed. So, where did cancel culture come from? <laughs> but that the 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 white the occidental the American mm -hmm. people and that mm -hmm. color saying, well, they're canceling our culture. But mm -hmm. people saying that usually don't see the whole spectrum. Where, wow, whose whose people did we remove from a continent? Whose continent did we take over? Microaggression that we need to keep the democracy going. The vote is going to count. We're going to, because it's good for everybody. But Saudi, I don't see anybody in the world lining up for democracy. Well, I mean, that's the point. I mean, that's one of the big uh, jokes, cruel, harsh jokes about, you know, the country that I'm living in, the United States, you know, so, you know, that that is based on democracy and that, you know, it's the police, you know, of the world and we're going to bring, you know, democracy to everybody else. But, you know, that's a fallacy. It's a lie. And, um, you know, we have to be able to see that micro and macro aggression of all that and and to see that, you know, that's not what we're dealing with, you know, again, if we see, you know, uh, the, you know, what the Haudenosaunee created, you know, is not what the United States has forwarded. And, and there are many greater uh, expressions of democracy and communalism around the world that are seated strongly in indigenous cultures and the cultures that we created when we had direct relationship with the earth. So I think that's the, you know, the key in, in a lot of this. Um, is is to look at that and to be brave enough to break out of these, you know, yeah, the cancel culture. It's like, yeah, we want to cancel, you know, um, European colonialism, white supremacy. And if you're tied to whiteness, which you don't have to be, you know, yeah, you might be canceled with it. But that's not the goal. The goal is to have us be full human beings, you know, in our bodies and in relationship to each other. And yeah, if, if you want to, you know, turn that cancel culture around and say we're trying to cancel you, you're only going to get canceled if you stay along with the oppressive system. And if you want to go with that, yeah, OK, you know, and, and Mother Earth will do that when it sees things that are destructive to the balance. It'll it'll it'll, you know, say, no, we got to we got to end that. So, yeah. you know, we're, we're just looking to create earth based, you know, truth, you know, culture, you know, and yes, democracy. You know, how do we see each other? How do we relate to each other? How do we take care of each other? And that's seated directly in, in, in you know, in indigenous cultures. Not that we're perfect, you know, um, or have that they have been perfect throughout the world, but that's where it's seated, really, you know, yeah. in, in an attempt yeah. to take care of each other all the time throughout generations. 
And you have been just listening to an interview, part one, with Akumpa Sauti. You can find his current work at worldancestorconcert.com, either on Facebook and other global media network platforms. And it's always a pleasure to talk with Akumpa. And you've been listening to First Voices Radio. My name is Tiokus and Ghost Horse, and thank you again for joining us on Shimalaye Oyate Wani Wachichuelo. Se ou même qui mène ici, braka moi. Papa ou c'est ou même qui mène ici, braka moi. Braka, braka moi, ou Braka, braka moi, ferraille. C'est ou même qui mène ici, braka moi.
C'est vous-même qui venez ici, grand carré. 